Thank you, Jenna. Welcome everyone. We're excited to um, have you join us today about this is, you know, it's this is a topic that we could spend a full day on. Um, so this really is just an introduction to some of the foundational concepts as well as maybe some some practice tips. Um, we're so lucky to have Carla Barrett with us. Uh, I'm going to turn over to her to introduce herself. Yes, hi, I'm Carla Barrett. I am an attorney, a supervising attorney with the CPCS, the State Public Defender Agency. Um, I've been with the agency for over 14 years and um, in a few different offices, Brockton, Roxbury, and now I'm in our downtown Boston office. Um, and uh, Christina and I are on the BBA Criminal Law Section Steering Committee. I'm actually one of the co-chairs of that steering committee, and I'm happy to be here with you today. Thank you so much, Carla. Uh, my name is Christina Miller. Uh, I was a prosecutor for 19 years in Essex, Norfolk, and Suffolk counties. Uh, did a little bit of everything, district court, superior court, appeals, uh, spent seven years in appeals, and then spent 11 years as the chief of district courts uh, supervising the district and municipal courts for Suffolk County. I'm now a assistant clinical law professor uh, at the Suffolk Law School uh, in charge of the prosecutors program. I think some of my students are here. Hello, hello. Um, and we're excited because based on the signups, we've seen that there are some varying experience levels. I would encourage those of you who have been in, maybe gotten a little bit of court or, or seen an arraignment or maybe even handled an arraignment um, or seen somebody else handle an arraignment. If you have questions uh, about things you've seen particularly, uh, I'd encourage you to ask them. And uh, any questions, really, at any time, feel free to use that question and answer uh, feature, uh, which is on the bottom. I think it's usually on the bottom of Zoom. There's a pop-up uh, menu of items, and you'll see the question and answer. Uh, I think it's called, yeah, Q&A. Uh, which will then give you a pop-up window. All right, so let's begin. Um, first of all, I'm gonna, we're gonna use a, a PowerPoint today. Um, so I'm gonna kick that off. Um, Carla, can you see that? I can. Wonderful, thank you. So we're looking at district and municipal courts in Massachusetts. This, of course, this presentation is, is about Massachusetts. What is the difference between a district and a municipal court? It really, uh, there really is none. Uh, they do have separate sets of rules. However, they are almost identical sets of rules. Um, the municipal courts, there are eight of them. They are Boston, basically. So there's Boston municipal courts. Every other court is district court. Um, they do have different chiefs. They have different chains of command. But other than that, they really are the same. A note, um, there are some judges, by the way, who get really upset if you are in a municipal court and you call it a district court. So uh, just for your own knowledge, it would be, for example, the Chelsea District Court. But if you're in a municipal court, say Roxbury, it would be the Roxbury Division of the Boston Municipal Court. Uh, so you just want to get those pronunciate uh, what you say correct because some judges are really sensitive. <laughs> it's silly, but it's true. Um, 
All right, and this is a flow chart uh, that I just included. I'm not going to go through it, but it's one of the most comprehensive flow charts I've seen, and I've seen a lot of them, about how individuals can sort of flow through uh, the criminal justice system as well as flow out, right, uh, of the criminal justice system. And you can see early on, there is a lot of ways in which people can be diverted, charges um, can be handled both pre-arraignment, post-arraignment, uh, and then throughout the entire system. As you may or may not know, on average, you know, anywhere from 85 to 90% of cases are adjudicated without trial. And so everybody talks about trial work and, you know, wow, you know, I want to be a trial lawyer. The interesting thing is that usually uh, litigators are not, um, uh, usually litigators um, are, are really the majority of their time is spent not at trial, right? It's trying to adjudicate a case uh, where, in a way, without trial. And uh, that you can have different opinions about that, but um, it is sort of the reality that we live in. There is a question about what the chart being downloaded. This whole PowerPoint is gonna be sent to all participants um, who signed up. This will be emailed to you um, at the end of the program. So how do you get there, right? How does someone who's accused of a crime get there? Um, it, you In Massachusetts, it's typically either an arrest or a summons. So officers have very, police officers and law enforcement has a very limited right to arrest in Massachusetts. They can arrest for anything where there's probable cause to believe that a felony has been committed. A misdemeanor, there is the right to arrest if it is committed in the officer's presence, involves the breach of the peach, and is continuing at the time of the breach or is interrupted by the officer's presence. So essentially, you know, you think about a fight and the officer sees the fight, right? Um, or the fight stops as soon as the officer gets there. That's the perfect example of something where the officer can arrest even though it's a misdemeanor. Um, that misdemeanor would be assault and battery. There are some very specific statutorily authorized crimes where an officer can arrest drug offenses, shoplifting. The biggest one, um, the most common one you see in district or municipal courts is what's called abuse offenses or basically domestic violence based offenses. Um, arrest warrants are usually for more serious cases than district court, but occasionally you might see an arrest warrant. If there is no right to arrest, then the individual will be summonsed. Notice, however, um, the officer can also use their discretion. So even though they can arrest an individual, they may still summons that person. Um, and therefore, if there is a summons um, to be issued, the clerk's office is going to issue that summons upon the application for the complaint. So um, let's talk a little bit about that uh, in a minute. But first, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to use your Q&A pop-up. So an example, the police are called to a bar fight uh, in progress, and when they arrive, the fight's over, but there are two individuals outside 
one has an open cut on his head and claims um, the other one just hit him with a beer bottle. So um, the first question, right, is, now we know, is it a felony or a misdemeanor? Does anybody, can anybody tell me whether they think a felony or a misdemeanor has occurred and what that might be? Anybody want to give it a shot? I do what I do in my classes, which is take a, take a few sips of coffee and wait. Talking about it, okay. So one person thinks it's a misdemeanor. Um, and assault, some people think it's a felony. So this is great, this is wonderful. Um, so because it's a beer bottle, that's the distinguishing factor. This is an assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. The dangerous weapon makes it a felony. And I'm about to tell you why um, it's a felony and not a misdemeanor. If it was a fist, then it would be an assault and battery and it would be a misdemeanor. So either way, um, well, not either way. If it's a felony, the officer can arrest. If it's uh, if it's, and here, because it's assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, the officer can arrest because it is not, did not happen in the officer's presence. So if there's no right to arrest, then what happens? Well, the officer would take the report, take the information, in a, uh, put it into a police report, and then they would go to the district or municipal court for that jurisdiction and file for a complaint to be issued. There's a clerk magistrate in every district or municipal court. Um, they also have assistant clerk magistrates, all of which handle these applications and determine whether um, the complaint should issue or whether it goes to a what's called a clerk magistrate's hearing also, you might hear it called a show cause hearing. So these hearings are led by clerk magistrates or assistant clerk magistrates. And at these hearings, um, there is the right for the person who is um, being accused to appear to speak. Um, they can also choose not to appear, not to speak. But what is required is they get notice. So the clerk magistrate sends out a notice for the clerk magistrate's hearing. Um, also, uh, a notice is sent to the alleged victim as well as to um, the officer. Uh, again, the officer should show. <laughs> that's that's uh, important. Um, the, the alleged victim does, does or does not have to. So... So, um, the, at the hearing, right, there is uh, the right to be heard. The accused has the right to be heard. Now, of course, there's Fifth Amendment issues there, and so um, often a uh, defendant may or may not speak, um, but there will be an inquiry of anybody who's there to present um, either testimony or evidence, and the clerk magistrate must find probable cause to believe the crime has been committed after review of the application the affidavit as well as any testimony that's heard in the clerk magistrate's hearing. Um, so 
the clerk a clerk's hearing is mandatory this is a creation of statute so there is a statute that handles and determines uh, when, who has the right to a clerk's hearing and who's, who doesn't. A clerk's hearing <clears throat> is, um, is required pretty much for any, um, any misdemeanor crime um, where there is not uh, proof that a suspect poses an imminent threat of bodily injury, a threat to commit a, another crime, or flight from the Commonwealth. So, you, so in the reverse of that, there's no clerk's hearing where the averment, i.e. the affidavit filed by the officer for the application for complaint, um, where there is a, a misdemeanor, where the suspect poses an imminent threat of bodily injury, a threat to commit a, another crime or flight from the Commonwealth. Um, also, another way a complaint can be issued is any civilian can walk into any um, district or municipal court and file for a complaint. That will go to then go to a clerk magistrate's hearing. Um, why, why do you care about this? There's two main reasons, uh, I think, that I see. One is that um, there could be let's say you're handling a case as a defense attorney and your client had the right to a clerk magistrate hearing but did it and, it and one occurred but your client never got notice or the opportunity to appear well that's a statutory right that that client has and so there could be a motion to dismiss the charges um, to give the in accused individual that right the opportunity for that right the other one is that sometimes um, you may be asked to uh, by a client to represent them at a clerk magistrate's hearing. Some clerks, they have discretion about whether to allow counsel or not. Um, some clerks do not allow attorneys into the actual hearing. Some do. Um, sometimes it can be very advantageous to handle the matter at the clerk's hearing because sometimes matters can be resolved which is really one of the purposes of the clerk's hearing is that um, parties can come together maybe they could resolve the issues that arise that have arised maybe there's a dispute involved um, or it's it's a minor crime and the clerk says you know what um, stay I'm going to hold the complaint for six months stay out of trouble if you don't get any trouble the complaint won't issue. So there's this, this um, diversion of sorts that is not statutory, it's just kind of something that some clerks do um, and other clerks don't do. So it's, uh, it's something you should know about because sometimes uh, attorneys are asked to help individuals who have been uh, requested to attend a clerk magistrate's hearing. A quick note on jurisdiction if I, there we go um, so quick note on jurisdiction district court or municipal court I should put both um, all misdemeanors have jurisdiction uh, some felonies that are in this very specific statute so um, assault and battery with dangerous weapon is a perfect example that's a that is a felony um, but there is district court jurisdiction because it's in 21826. 
and then violations of town ordinance and bylaws, everything else, felonies and misdemeanors can be heard in superior court. But there are some, uh, there are some crimes, obviously non-enumerated felonies that have superior court only jurisdiction. I'm just checking for questions. Okay, so there's a question about um, if there's no right to an arrest, the police ask for a complaint and a magistrate hearing after filing a report. Um, so that is correct. If there's no right to arrest, the police officer uh, would go gather the information, including hopefully that of the person accused, um, if they're still at the scene. If they're not at the scene, then um, they're going to take all the reports. They're going to try and identify who the um, alleged perpetrator is. And then they're going to go to request a complaint to, to the court from the magistrate. And then there's a determination at that point whether there's it warrants a clerk magistrate's hearing or the other option is if it doesn't um, if it doesn't warrant a clerk magistrate's hearing or if one is not recommended based on the requirements then the summons could go out <clears throat> directly from the clerk's office all right i hope that answers your question there it's confusing because a lot of people um they will they'll conflate you know or put together the right to arrest and the right to a clerk magistrate's hearing but those are two separate issues um, that don't necessarily uh come together right so you can have the right um right i i won't go on but um i i do acknowledge that it can be a little confusing and so when you have those issues you know go back to the fundamental elements of what is required so jurisdiction, um, why is this important? Well, there's a couple of issues with, um, first of all, if there's no final court jurisdiction, i.e. if there's superior court only jurisdiction, the next date from arraignment is a probable cause date. We could do a whole nother training about probable cause and the grand jury and all that. But for now, it's enough to say that the next date is a probable cause date. Um, and that prosecutors would then send up the packet for review to see if a superior court unit wanted to um, present the issue, present the case to the grand jury and open a grand jury investigation to seek indictment, right, um, from the grand jury or not, right? So um, superior court review might say, you know what, no, even though um, this is a superior court only jurisdiction charge. We're not going to, it's not significant enough to handle in superior court. It needs to be a district court charge. What will happen then is the prosecutor will move to amend the charges to lesser included offenses uh, that do have district court jurisdiction. Um, and then also a defense attorney should be aware, right, that if there's a superior court only charges and there's a probable cause hearing as the next date, typically you want a 30-day date or less um, because grand jury uh, times and probable cause dates 
are usually in 30-day or less increments. So how do you know? How do you know where there's jurisdiction? Well, the complaint will often say no district court final jurisdiction. So that's really the easiest way. However, it's not always right, right? First of all, the police may not have filed for the correct charges. Second of all, the clerk magistrate may have not issued the correct charges. Um, so some examples, forgery, right? Um, the complaint may read that there's no final district court jurisdiction, but there is a version of forgery that does have district court jurisdiction. Um, assault and battery for purposes of intimidation with bodily injury. This is uh, basically a hate, hate crime um, with bodily injury, has no district court jurisdiction, but that very same statute has a version that is without bodily injury, which does have district court jurisdiction. So sometimes you want to dig a little more um, and try and figure out what is um, what does or does not have district court jurisdiction. Great, so now I'm going to turn over to Carla um, as soon as I get to the next slide. There we go. Um, to sort of jump into uh, an overview of the district court process and then take us directly into first session. Yes. So I'm going to just kind of give a very brief, broad overview of what the whole process will be, but we really are going to be spending um, time here today just digging in deep to the first appearance, first session, um, what happens there. But when a case is kind of at that stage where a complaint has issued, um, you know, we've kind of gotten beyond the question of is there going to be a clerk magistrate's hearing or not. A complaint has issued. What happens is, well, the, the defendant is arraigned and appointed an attorney. Um, then there's an exchange of discovery. Um, and then, you know, any issues that may have to be litigated um, by way of motion are kind of hashed out. And then ultimately what you're doing is building towards the trial. Um, now, a case can kind of fall away at any point in this process. As Christina said, you know, solid 85 to 90% of cases that enter the criminal justice system are not resolved by way of trial. And they could be resolved because a person might choose to change their plea, um, which we'll touch on a little bit kind of later, um, but also a case might be um, diverted out of the system or a case might be dismissed for one of a uh, bunch of different reasons. Um, so that is kind of the, the overview. Um, this slide lists kind of just a little bit more detail, you know, at the arraignment. Um, we're going to get into all these things that can happen at the first appearance, so I'll kind of go past that. But at the pre-trial conference, that's when, you know, like I said, there's this exchange of discovery. Um, the Commonwealth is expected once they have provided all of the discovery that they um, believe exists, they have to file a certificate with the court stating as much. And the defendant does have uh, reciprocal discovery obligations, um, which kick in after the Commonwealth has complied with all their discovery obligations. You might have reason to file discovery motions. You might have reason to file um, other non-evidentiary motion um, either pertaining to trying to collect information uh, like medical records or, or school records or other things like that, 
There might be uh, motions to suppress evidence, which can happen either in an evidentiary hearing where witnesses testify about how evidence was gathered, or perhaps um, in a non-evidentiary type hearing. And so once all those issues are kind of ha um, hacked out, that's when you have your trial. You don't have your trial until you really have all the discovery kind of pinned down, um, that would be, which would be legally admissible. Um, but if any point during this process, your client says, look, you know, I know that, you know, it's in my best interest to change my plea here. Can you please try to negotiate a deal? Then, then you can do that. Um, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, that happening at the first appearance, but really, you know, it, it can happen at, you know, one of these pretrial conferences, compliance and election date, motion dates. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of different ways in which a case can be taken out of this general court process. Um, do you want to go to the next slide? So first session, um, first session, that process that I just went through um, is when you have like a, a typical case. If you have, if you have kind of the, uh, the, the textbook case start to finish, you go arraignment, pretrial, motion, trial. Um, arraignment happens in first session and that's where you go from there. That's the textbook case. None of our cases are textbook cases. Every case is going to have to come to court um, for a thousand different reasons. When you're in first session, um, that is the first appearance of the person who's being arraigned and um, a bunch of different things happen at arraignment. Now, I just kind of want to throw in the fact that um, defendants come into first session for a lot of reasons other than first appearance, and we'll kind of touch on some of them, but I just wanted to note that, um, you know, we'll get into this more in a little bit, but if a person's released on bail with conditions, and there's an allegation that they violated those conditions, well, then they're going to um, be in first session, even though it's not for an arraignment. Or maybe a person has a case that's pending and they've defaulted a court date and they get arrested on that default warrant, they'll be back in first session even though it's not for an arraignment. Um, it can get super confusing when you have a client who is on probation and has a pending case and picked up a new case and had another warrant that they weren't aware of. And so figuring out exactly what's going on can get relatively challenging and chaotic. Um, so, you know, they're really, when you get into first session, when you've had that opportunity to be in a first session and kind of see the way the sausage is made, I suppose, um, you'll, you'll, you'll see what we're talking about, that there can just be a lot of different things that happen. But, um, but if you wanna know what just a pure arraignment, first appearance looks like, um, you can go to YouTube and, watch Kevin Spacey's arraignment in the Massachusetts court, which is what we've got up there on the PowerPoint. Um, and there are a couple of other examples that are available if you wanted to, if you haven't had the opportunity to go into court. But back on that arraignment, um, again, so your client will be typically arraigned, um, so, so there's an allegation of a, of a crime. And so either your, your client could be arrested immediately, um, or maybe your client was not arrested at the scene, but there's a probable cause determination made that your client 
should be arrested. And so a warrant is issued for their arrest and they're arrested at some later time or they're summoned to court for their arraignment um, after the clerk's hearing happened. Um, either before or after, oh, yeah, <laughs> or they're summoned to court eventually. So, but if it's their very first appearance, then the first thing that happens is they, an, an arraignment is just a notification of the charges. Um, they're formally being told on the record, a criminal case is pending against them and this is what they're charged with. Um, they're at that first appearance also appointed a lawyer um, it does say on the slide or not, there are, um, on the one hand, you're not entitled, a defendant's not entitled to an attorney if there's no possibility of them facing jail time. So that might be one situation where they're not appointed in a lawyer. Also, if a person's not determined to be indigent, then they won't be appointed a lawyer and they'll just be expected to hire their own lawyer if they choose to have one, or if the, the defendant just straight up says, you know, I want to represent myself. Um, all those things can happen. But the majority of cases um, are cases in which the uh, defendant will be appointed an attorney, either somebody who works for CPCS or a private attorney who has agreed to take court-appointed cases as a bar advocate. Um, so after the counsel is appointed, then there's the question of whether that person will be detained or released pending the resolution of the case. Um, and if they're gonna be released, whether or not conditions are going to be set. Um, also at that first appearance, there's gonna be some discovery that, that's turned over. Um, the Commonwealth will give the defense attorney a copy of the police report. Um, probation will provide both parties with a copy of the defendant's board of probation record, if one exists. Um, triple I is, in parentheses, you'll see there on the slide, um, that is, uh, basically whether the person has an out-of-state record as well. Um, so, you know, that can be important information. Um, the clerk is responsible for producing the complaint, and the complaint is uh, just, again, that, that formal document saying these are the charges against you. Uh, they have the identifying information of the defendant, um, the court where um, these charges are going forward, and a list of the charges with a line or two about what the actual allegations are, um, as well as what the potential penalty is. Um, there might be some situations where maybe the prosecutor at that time has additional information to turn over to the, to the defense attorney right away. Um, it's great when that happens, but for the most part, um, additional discovery really is gonna have to be kind of um, resolved at future court dates. The, um, defense attorney, when they get the case, and I'll talk in a, a little bit also about, you know, some things that a defense attorney wants to be mindful of when they're first meeting their client. I'll go into that a little bit later. But when you're, when the defense attorney gets the case, you really want to review all of this um, because there might be some things that, that need to be addressed right away at the first appearance that, you know, waiting until a later court date is not going to cut it. Um, you know, maybe you get the police report and you look through it and maybe you think a clerk decided that there was probable cause for a complaint to issue, but you're just, you just don't see it. You think that there might be a couple of elements that really are missing. So at that first appearance, um, to the extent the defense attorney is able to raise that, um, you really want to try to do that. Um, also, there are some times when you're looking at the initial report or talking to your client and it occurs to you that there might be some evidence out there that you really need to, to preserve, make sure it doesn't get, um, doesn't get destroyed right away. Like sometimes there, there's 
you think that this happened in an area where there's going to be video surveillance and some places have video surveillance that's taped over within just a few days. So you want to um, make sure that you file a motion and get notice to whoever would be in possession of that video surveillance that they don't destroy it so that you have opportunity to get it or other things like that that may come up. Um, also, defense attorneys um, who work with indigent clients, if they have, if they think that they're going to have to hire an expert or hire uh, an interpreter or something, then then um, you can request funds from the court in order to do that at that initial um, at that initial hearing. Now, the slide does say uh, the possibility of disposition. There, the I think that for the most part, you want to. Start with the, the the premise that your case is not going to be disposed of at the first appearance. Um, if you have a client who's sitting in jail saying, I'm going to plead guilty right now. I did it. I'm going to plead guilty. Don't let me enter a plea of not guilty. You say, hold up. Wait a second. We need to take a step back. I know you're really upset. We need to really look at this. Um, I, I can't, you know, I just met you. I'm just going through this discovery. I don't want to help you. I, we're not going to dispose of your case today. Um, but that is the rule, and with every rule, there are exceptions. So, you know, as you're kind of first getting started, I would say that if you find yourself in a situation where you think you might have a case that is going to need some kind of disposition or something at the first appearance, you know, as you're getting your, your uh, legs under you, your feet under your legs, however the expression is, you know, maybe take a step back, talk that out. Um, but for the most part, you're, you know, you're not going to be disposing of cases at the first appearance. So the next slide. So um, in this question of detention or relief, um, the first question, one question, is whether there's going to be a cash bail imposed in case. And in Massachusetts, the statute governing um, cash bail is Chapter 276, Section 58. And it um, lists who can set bail and when and why. And it does say within the statute that the presumption is that a person is going to be released on their own personal recognizance which is a fancy way of saying that the person doesn't have to put up any money. All they have to do is say, I promise I will come to all of my court dates. And the court says, that's fine. Thank you. We'll see you, you know, in a few weeks. And they're allowed to go home and, um, and, and that's what personal recognizance is. Um, the goal, as it says in the slide, is to ensure the appearance of the defendant at all future court dates. Um, you know, we can't resolve the case if the defendant absconds. So um, the question as to whether there needs to be cash bail or conditions of release really hinges on, you know, what is necessary to secure this person's appearance at the next court date. Um, and in a minute, I'll go over some of um, these other considerations as to, you know, when to a cash bail is given, but just these other things that here are here on the slide. Um, after a person is arraigned and after a determination is made as to whether or not there's going to be a cash bail, um, the court is required to warn the defendant that if they commit a new offense um, while out 
of, well, out on bail on this case, then they could be held in jail for up to 60 days. So um, that warning needs to be given, and there are some other situations where a warning is, needs to be given, and um, so that, that, that really needs to happen, and there's a place where the clerk checks off, making sure that happens, and we'll talk in a little bit about, you know, um, why that's important, because why that could come up later. Um, you do want to cash bail is set. Um, and also I'll talk a little bit about a little bit about dangerousness hearings um, in, a, in a little while. But if a cash bail is set by a judge in a district court or a municipal court, the defendant does have a right to appeal um, that bail that has been set to a judge in the superior courts. Um, it's a de novo review. So um, if the defendant says, I want to appeal the bail that was set, I think it was too high. I don't, um, yeah, I can't make the bail that, that, that they've set. Um, all of the information about the case, the police report, the complaint, um, the board of probation record, as well as the reasons that the district court judge set the bail are all then given to superior court and a prosecutor and defense attorney appear in superior court where a defendant can say, look, this bail that was set in the district court is unfair, unreasonable, I can't post it. Um, please review this decision that was made. Um, quick note, it's a, as the, uh, the, the, the picture shows there in the slide, no, no bail bonds here in Massachusetts. So in some states, um, you know, they, they, there are systems that exist where if you, you provide a certain percentage of the amount of money that is expected for bail to a bail bondsman, then um, they can, you know, get the, assure the release of the, the defendant. We don't have that in Massachusetts, so it's, it's not like they set your bail at $1,000 and you only have to come up with 100. No, in Massachusetts, if your bail is set at $1,000 cash, you have to come up with $1,000 cash and you have to give it to um, the court. Um, there is also a system of putting up surety. It's very complicated. And in all honesty, in my 14 years, I've never personally been involved with somebody putting up surety. Um, so I'm not going to go too much into that. But it has to do with, you know, if you have certain ownership in a very valuable piece of property and want to put that up in exchange for the person getting out, um, that somehow can happen sometimes in some places. But really, for the most part, what we're talking about is X cash is X number of dollars. You've got to put that up. And what that is, is, you know, your instead of this personal recognizance, the I promise to come to all of my future court dates, it's here, I'm giving you $1,000. And um, if I come to all of my future court dates, when this case is finally over, you're going to give me my $1,000 back. So that's what bail is. Um, it, what the incentive is, is I'm going to give you $1,000 so I don't have to sit here in jail, but if I don't come to my court date, then you keep that $1,000. I don't want you to keep that $1,000, so I'm going to come to all of my court dates. That's the theory behind it. Um, like I said, I'm going to go into the things that a judge can consider. Um, so why don't we move on to the next slide. So as I get as we get into these factors that can be considered, as I uh, said, that there are a few places on the internet where you can see either um, 
just kind of a tutorial or, or a mock arraignment so just you can get a feel for what it looks like. Um, there's some court hearings, uh, like real court hearings that are recorded and available for, uh, you know, if the news media shows up for something, you can see it. But um, you'll, I think when you see, when you get the PowerPoint emailed to you later, if you want to go in and watch these, um, these bail videos, just again, to get a flavor for what an arraignment looks like, you can. So here um, are the factors in setting cash bail. Now, as I mentioned, um, if the defendant wants to appeal a bail that is set by a district court judge to a superior court, one thing that the superior court judge gets is a list of um, what the judge considered when setting the bail. And this that you have in front of you, the judge in district court literally has this list in front of them as well. Um, and so they will, you know, make written findings of why they set bail and written findings really just means taking this checklist and putting some check mark next to it. Um, there is a place for, uh, you know, more narrative form of why of uh, findings as to why a judge set a certain amount of bail um, available on this form. But um, really what the judge is looking at, you know, first and foremost is the financial resources. And there has been some litigation in Massachusetts about this recently, Commonwealth versus Bregman. Um, it's the biggest case um, where really, as I said before, uh, the presumption, you're supposed to start with the presumption that people will come back just based on their promise, not even having to put up cash bail. Um, and the law really is, it's supposed to be set up so that, you know, if you're not going to let somebody go on their personal recognizance, if you're going to set a cash bail, for the most part, you're not supposed to set a cash bail in an amount that you know is going to mean that person stays in jail, um, something that is unaffordable to the person. There, that's not to say that it's not acceptable to set a cash bail knowing that the defendant's not going to be able to post it. There are circumstances where the courts have said that that is constitutional, but um, but really the the law is such that the judges are supposed to aim for something that is within the financial reach of the defendant. Um, so, so in order to come to that determination, the judge has to look at the defendant's financial resources and they'll get that information. Um, the, when a defendant comes into court, they're going to be interviewed by the probation department um, and they'll be asked questions about their financial circumstances, their income and expenses really and assets um, whether they have dependents etc um, and they can also run uh, an irs report um, so that's the way the judge the court kind of gets information about their financial resources how much can this person really come up with um, but the all these other things that the judge can take into consideration are actually specifically listed in the bail statute that um, uh, chapter 276, section 58, um, and then, you know, given to the judge in this list form so that they can be sure to remember. Um, the prosecutor is looking at these factors when they make their requests for cash bail, and the defense attorney is looking at these factors when they uh, are advocating on behalf of their client in order to get their client released on something that they can post. And, you know, a lot of these things are going to come up when the defense attorney has their initial interview with their client. You want to ask your client about some about their financial resources. You want to ask them about their employment, about their um, their their uh, connections to the community, 
involvement in the community, um, and really <laughs> everything that you'll see on this list. Um, so knowing that the judge is going to take all these things into consideration when they're making the determination about bail, um, that's why you're going to want to kind of go through all of this when the defense attorney has their initial interview with the client. I think the next slide. Are you ready for me? Um, yes. So you're, you know, what's going to happen, and Massachusetts is a little different because we have the clerk magistrate um, as the issuing, the person issuing the complaint, and typically it's a police officer or a civilian um, who's going to apply for that complaint. We're a little different because the first time the prosecutor or the attorney typically sees a case is at arraignment. So, you know, you, you think about the chaos, right, of district uh, court. Uh, it's because, you know, gosh, I, I, have, I have to handle a hearing in 30 minutes. Um, I have to fully assess everything that's going on here. Um, I, and, and for a defense attorney, I've got to get to know my client. For the prosecution, you know, I want to reach out to the alleged victim if, if there is an individual victim or gather more information. Everything happens very, very quickly. And so access to information um, can be key. The three things, if you remember nothing else, um, particularly for the prosecutors, the three things that you must have before being able to assess re recommendations for the case are the complaint, the board of probation record, which would be, you're going to hear it called a BOP. Half of, half of district court is acronyms. You're just learning the acronyms. <laughs> so BOP, or you'll hear CORI, um, which is criminal offender record information. That is the Massachusetts um, records of an uh, individual's arraignments, and then of course anything now interesting, oh, and also restraining orders um, and harassment prevention orders. There's also some uh, specific demographic information about um, birth date and aliases. Um, so there's a, a good amount of information on that document. Triple I, right? Um, Massachusetts only recently went to giving running triple I's on a regular basis. It used to be that you had to request them and now um, they made a change there and so now they run them on a regular basis and provide those. So you're going to get those, uh, both sides are going to get those from probation. The clerk will hand you the complaint and then there's usually a police officer assigned to each courthouse. Um, they coordinate often the police uh, summonses, the comings and going, and often you will get the police report from that individual. But those are the three things you absolutely need before making a decision. There will be judges who will say, you know, look, you know, we got to get going. I got I a list of 60 cases here. We're going to be here all day, like whatever. Um, but if you don't have that board of probation record, you can't make an assessment. So, um, or the complaint or the police report, right? And there's a lot you need to do to ask, uh, to assess that information. You need to look, is there a probable cause? Are these the correct charges? 
are there any open cases? Um, and you're gonna, we're gonna talk a little bit about how that affects your options as well. There is an issue, so the Brangen case, um, I would encourage you to read it. I would also encourage you, by the way, to read these statutes, read the rules of criminal procedure. Um, you know, I, I know there's plenty of lawyers who haven't, but <clears throat> when you're learning, it's really uh, spectacular, right? It's, it's a great education moment. When you've read the rule and then you see and you have this sort of image of what you think that rule will look like or mean, um, and then you go into a court and you see what it actually means <laughs> and how it's actually operating. Um, so I, I would just recommend that you read them um, and you can even read them while you're sitting in court um, waiting, you know, trust me, there is a ton of waiting. You like run to get there at nine o'clock and then you wait for an hour, right? Or you wait for your case to be called. So use that downtime, read these rules um, uh, and read the statutes that apply. There is a dispute, uh, so Brangen, there is a dispute about the probation intake form, right? So an individual comes in, they have to file they have to fill out that probation intake form unless they want to say, I'm not indigent, but I think even then, I mean, I'm not uh, not indigent, uh, but even then I think they have to fill out some of the basic information. So um, that is signed under the pains and penalties of perjury. And actually uh, I have seen some cases where um, people have been investigated for reporting, not reporting income. Uh, it's rare, but it may, because of the Brangen decision, um, occur more often because more prosecutors are saying, look, if financial and ability to pay uh, and ability to make bail uh, is a key issue, I also get that I should have the right to that information um, as well as um, be able to investigate whether it's truthful or not on the form. Um, some People say that, you know, this person hasn't waived their Fifth Amendment right and therefore the, the form should not be used. Uh, also, is it a public document or not? So anyway, so I just want you to know that's an ongoing issue. Um, conditions of release. So there's a lot of misinformation about conditions of release. This is somewhere where I would really, if you become if you read these statutes and you actually apply them correctly, you will be a genius. Everybody will look at you and go, oh my God, they are so smart. Because people ask for and agree to conditions of release all the time without knowing which statute it's under. Um, the key piece also about which statute it's under is because there are different revocation times, meaning, if those conditions of release are violated, and we'll get to that, then um, the prosecutor can move for revocation of bail up to, under some statutes, it's 60 days. Under other statutes, it's 90 days. So, um, and then under other, other statutes, 120 days. Um, not these, the bail statute. So you, you need to, if you know these statutes and you know which one you're requesting under or which one, by the way, you're agreeing to, um, you will be a genius and everybody will think you're amazing. 
Um, what's, what's interesting here is conditions of release, you, you can, under certain statute, consider whether it ameliorates or makes someone less dangerous, right? Whereas cash bail, you can't consider danger in cash bail, but you can consider them in conditions of release and or whether that condition will ensure a later appearance, which is your traditional bail, uh, cash bail issue. I've listed some common conditions here. Um, the rationale, so when you think about the goal of safety, right, keeping someone safe. So maybe a GPS, stay away from, let's say it's a domestic violence case, right? A stay away um, with the exclusion zone of within 500 feet of the alleged victim's home and work with GPS monitoring, right? So that would, the rationale would be that that is going to keep uh, the alleged victim safe. There are other conditions that are more about ensuring appearance, such as check-ins, probation check-ins weekly, or being sober, or random testing for illegal substances or alcohol. Um, the rationale being is if you're sober, if you're in treatment, you're more likely to appear in the future. If you, um, let's say the, this person's record is full of violence and drugs, <clears throat> as well as maybe the, the new, uh, the allegations of the new complaint, it may do both, right? If, someone's, if someone is sober, then they will all be less violent and be more likely to appear. But the key here is that you have to tie it to uh, whether you're ameliorating danger or making someone less likely to be dangerous or commit dangerous offenses um, all, and or whether you're ensuring appearance. Um, and defense counsel or the prosecutor may use this as a negotiation tactic with that goal in mind, right? So. Um, there could be a combination of cash bail and conditions of release, or someone might say, look, you know, my client will agree to these conditions of release um, in lieu of bail. Like, he, you know, he can't come up with bail, but I may be able to ensure appearance um, based on these conditions of release. Uh, you should note, however, you need to know your probation department. Some probation departments will not supervise pretrial conditions of release. They just won't. They say, we don't have enough. Don't get me going. Um, <laughs> they say they don't have enough. Um, they're too busy handling sentenced probationers that they don't have time for pretrial, supervised pretrial conditions of release. Notice some of these conditions are not supervised. The no contact, direct or indirect, you don't need a probation officer to supervise that, but random testing, um, you do. Um, AA meetings, some probation departments may say, you know, there needs to be somebody to supervise that. Um, others can say, well, they'll just provide a, a <laughs> proof or not, but um, there's some dispute on that. So I also, there's some philosophies that are different about pretrial conditions of release. Some people think that it's a good trial run for probation, right? So you put somebody on some conditions to show that they can comply and that they're more likely to 
um, comply with probation as a sentence if, if the case is going to plea. It could also maybe shorten the length of probation. Hey, this person has technically kind of already been on probation. And so instead of a year, it should be six months. Um, other people think that um, it imposes too much on an individual uh, without them even adjudicating the case, right? So this is all about danger and conditions to ensure appearance. This isn't about sentencing somebody. Um, and whether it's now or whether it's in sentencing, I think everyone can agree, or at least in my opinion, imposing too many conditions and sometimes conditions at all can really set up a person to fail. Um, so, you know, some somebody might say, you know, I want stay away, no contact. I want um, uh, randoms with uh, no alcohol. I want a scram unit on the car. I want, um, which is, you know, you have to blow into the car. Um, uh, or no, intoxilizer on the car. I want a scram unit at home. I want, I want, you know, I want two AA meetings a week. I want that, you know, it's too much. It's too much. Um, you're really just setting someone up to fail. So be careful, be careful. Be very thoughtful in thinking about whether conditions relief really are warranted or not. And it could be they're not warranted at all. Um, we mentioned revocation a few times, right? Um, and so Carla's gonna talk about revocation. So um, revocation can happen when basically you don't meet one of these conditions. Um, now, as I get into this, I do wanna acknowledge, I think that a couple of questions skipped by when I was doing my uh, last presentation about um, bail. Um, and I want to make sure that that I address those. Sorry, I didn't I didn't notice them right away. I think hopefully Christina um, addressed the question regarding um, why might um, a person's history of, of substance use disorder be applicable. Um, I know that she touched on that, but I also just really quickly wanted to answer the other question that came up, which is can a person post bail after arrest but before arraignment? The answer is yes. Um, after a person is arrested, um, if they're not um, if court's not open or you know there's some other reason why they're they're not taken to court immediately then a bail bondsman actually a bail bondsman a, a clerk or somebody who, who um, would set bail can go to the police station and make an initial assessment of what a bail should be um, if that person can post bail so sometimes people do post bail at the police station before they've been arraigned go into court the next day but then when they're at court the next day, there is actually then a de novo review of what the bail should be. So whatever bails the person posted at the police station, the question is, okay, is that gonna be sufficient for what the, the Commonwealth and the judge um, think is that case is worth? So hopefully I was able to answer those two questions. Sorry, I missed them earlier. Back to the question of revocation because um, this, as I mentioned, when talking about just kind of an overview of first session, um, you know, when a, you'll see a case come in that's not there for its very first appearance. Um, so, as I mentioned, there, there's the one warning, which is, you know, if you're out after either on your personal recognizance or having posted some cash bail, um, and you are accused of a new crime, you you're warned at your arraignment that you could be your bail could be revoked and you could be held for up to 60 days um so that's one 
revocation that could potentially happen if somebody's being arraigned on a new case when they already have one pending. Another revocation that can happen is um, if you have conditions of release. And um, Christina was just going through all the different conditions that uh, can be set in different circumstances. So if you're ordered as a condition of your release to stay away from a certain location, and then you go to that location and um, the law enforcement, either the police the prosecutor, find out that you've been at that location. Well, you violated a promise you made to the court. And so your bail can be revoked and you can be held without the possibility of posting bail. Um, and then also, again, like I, I alluded to dangerousness hearings, I will get into those quickly in a second here, but um, if, so if, if you're given a condition of release under uh, Section 58, or if you're given a condition of release under Section 58A, the dangerousness statute, and you violate the condition, um, then your bail can be revoked. So when um, what's on the slide here is that your bail can be revoked under 68, Section 58 for 60 days, that's that situation where it's straight up, you have an open case and you pick up a new one. That's the 60-day revocation. 58B for 90 days, that's when you have a condition of release and you violated the condition. Now your, your bail is going to be revoked for 90 days, which actually has an asterisk on it because that 90 days can be extended for certain, um, for certain reasons. So um, a, defense, a, a defense attorney on duty in a first session one day might be appointed to represent somebody who's accused of violating their conditions of release on a pending case. So that's something that you might that um, you're going to have to be wary of. Um, now, when we're talking about conditions of release um, or or bail revocation, excuse me, when we're talking about bail revocation, now is when the question of whether the defendant poses a danger comes in. Um, if somebody comes in on a new arrest or a, a new arraignment, and they've got no other pending cases. Um, whether that person poses a danger to society really is only supposed to come into the judge's um, consideration about whether that person should be held if the Commonwealth files a motion for that person to be detained as a danger to society under Section 58A. If, that's, if they're not filing that motion and it's just straight up a question of what is it going to take to uh, um, get this person to return to court, the judge is not supposed to consider whether they're a danger. However, if there's a question of bail revocation um, because they've either picked up a new offense or they violated a condition, now the question of whether or not that person poses a danger can come into play. And so the judge can use that in deciding whether or not to um, revoke the person's bail. Um, also, quick side note, um, on these revocation, one question is when does the revocation end? The person can't be held without the possibility of posting bail indefinitely. Um, so there's either that 60 days, 90 days, um, or in the question of dangerousness hearing, 120 days with the asterisks because sometimes they can be extended. Um, or if the case in which you um, your bail is revoked gets resolved, then the revocation ends. Um, so if either that case is you, you, the defendant changes their plea, um, or they, uh, maybe the case gets dismissed for whatever reason, then, um, then 
uh, the revocation is over because that case isn't open anymore. Um, so the, que the question is, there a statute that opens dangerousness versus bail revocation? Yes, and we're going to talk about that now. So why don't we go to the next um, slide, Christina. Um, so dangerousness, chapter 276, section 58A. So really all these questions of detention or revocation while a case is pending are under 276, section 58, either 58, 58A, or 58B when it comes to the question of revocation. So as I, I just said, um, if somebody comes in in a new arrest and um, the Commonwealth thinks that they're a danger to society and they shouldn't be released, um, they have to file a motion under chapter 276, section 58. And unless they file this motion, the judge is not supposed to consider their dangerousness in making a determination about whether they should be released on bail or on conditions. But in a situation where the Commonwealth does think that this person poses an imminent danger, um, then they file this motion under Section 58A. As the slide says, uh, that motion must be filed at the first appearance. Um, the standard is no conditions of release would ensure the safety of others. And again, these conditions of release, now is when we're talking about things like, you know, being drug or alcohol free, or um, checking in with probation on a certain, a certain amount of time, or, you know, maintaining, you know, whatever else, staying away from a certain person um, uh, or place. So if the judge finds after a hearing that none of these conditions would assure the safety of the community or a particular individual in the community, then the defendant will be held without the possibility of posting any bail. They will, they will just be held. Um, the language in the statute is for up to 120 days, although again, this is another one of those situations where there's an asterisk and that 120 days can be extended um, depending on how the case is proceeding. Um, this is something else that the defendant can appeal um, if a district court or municipal court judge um, order somebody held without bail, um, the defendant can appeal that to a superior court judge the same way you can appeal um, just the imposition of cash bail. Um, and there was something else that had just popped into my head that I forgot. Oh, um, let me see. So just one other one other quick note. I realize that we're, we're getting late, but just a couple other quick notes about dangerousness. So um, these, these are hearings that um, would be evidentiary, um, potentially. Uh, and so since they're frequently going to be hearings, you're really not going to do them on day one. So the motion does have to be filed on, that, um, on the defendant's first appearance in court when they're being arraigned. Um, but either the defense attorney or the prosecutor can ask for a continuance. I think um, prosecutor can ask for a three-day continuance and the um, defense attorney can ask for seven days, if I'm not mistaken, um, so that each side can potentially interview witnesses, gather all the documents they think are necessary, um, and then, you know, kind of make, it, make a strategic decision about, you know, how is this, how is this hearing going to go? Um, are witnesses going to come in and testify about, you know, what happened? So that the judge can make a determination as to whether you know the person involved here is really in fact um, a danger and shouldn't be released 
even though they are presumed innocent of the, uh, of the allegation. Um, so Christina, unless you think I missed something big there, or unless there are any questions on dangerousness, we can move on to, um, we're gonna touch on dispositions. Yeah, no. Um, the one thing I will say about um, 27658A, um, it was imp it was uh, adopted later, so Massachusetts statutes are really old and incredibly oddly written because they are so old and have been amended. 58A is the exception. Uh, it's really clear. It's very helpful if you ever uh, think you might have a dangerousness hearing that you need to handle, read the statute. It's just, it's actually, for once, really helpful. <laughs> so, a little bit about dispositions um, at, at, at arraignment, right? I'm not talking about, um, although I, I suppose some of this could happen at a pretrial conference or, or a later date, but, but some of this uh, happens at arraignment. So there are, um, I'm aware uh, of several, uh, what I would call district attorney-led diversions. Um, certainly the DA Rollins's memo from Suffolk County is a, a sample of pre-arraignment um, and sometimes post-arraignment diversion. There is also um, DA Ryan, I know DA Blodgett, um, all have some DA-led diversion programs. So depending on where you are practicing, I encourage you to learn what those are, what options are available, because often you can um, divert uh, a client or divert a case very early uh, and really get somebody into some quality programming or treatment, or um, have the case dismissed um, through this type of pre-arraignment diversion. There's also, of course, post-arraignment diversion. Statutory uh, diversions under 276A, we will talk about in a minute. Um, there are some specialty courts. I have a picture of some of the specialty courts that are available on the left. Um, the ones that are pre-adjudication include veterans court, mental health court, and homeless court. Um, they may not all be available in the court you're in, uh, but if you are in a court and on a regular basis or you have a particular client that you think might be a good candidate, um, it's really helpful to find out what is available to you. Also find out if, um, let's say you're in a smaller court, but uh, cases can be transferred. So if you're in East Boston, they don't have their own, you know, veterans court, but the central division does. Find out, um, and I know that they can be, but this is just an example of can the case be transferred to the central division <clears throat> for the purposes of going to veterans court. They are pre-adjudication, but uh, the goal of them often is either a lesser, um, <clears throat> upon completion of the program, sort of a, a lesser um, sentence or a dismissal. So the goal of homeless court, uh, which I was uh, involved in, uh, is dismissal. Um, often mental health court is the same. Uh, veterans court, it can vary. Uh, but it's good to know your specialty courts. Drug court uh, is post-adjudication, uh, just for your own knowledge. There also could be a general continuance. And this is sort of a, another sort of informal 
uh, before there were official diversion programs, this is often how DA's offices would sort of have um, un unofficial diversion. So basically that's saying, you know what, go, um, one example uh, for like minor drug offenses. So, um, you know, we're gonna continue this arraignment for three months. Um, a week before that three month date, uh, we want you to come in and test. If you test clean, then we're not gonna go forward with the arraignment. If you don't test clean, then we'll go forward with the arraignment and then see what happens with the case. It doesn't mean that it can't, uh, the case can't be adjudicated otherwise post arraignment, uh, but that might be a general continuance. There also could be an arraignment and a general continuance. We're gonna arraign the case, but we're gonna continue the pretrial for three months. Uh, same thing, if you show us that you've gone to four NA meetings, or if you have a letter showing that you've you know, done something we were asking you to do, then we're gonna either null-process the case or dismiss the case. A little note, I wanna uh, note <clears throat> just the difference between a null-process and a dismissal. So a null-process is the prosecutor actually a filing a piece of paper. By the way, null-process is a noun, not a verb. <laughs> it's a little sticky, uh, it's, it's one of my soapbox issues. Anyway, um, so it is actually a piece of paper that says the prosecutor is not, will not prosecute this case, and the standard is in the interests of justice. So it's in the interest of justice for the prosecutor not to go forward in this case, and it's actually a piece of paper that's filed with the court. A dismissal would be uh, either attorney um, or individual asking the court to dismiss the case, and then the court enters to the dismissal. The big difference is that the court can say, no, I'm not dismissing this case, but they cannot say no to a null process. So just a little side note um, when you're thinking about procedure. There's also civil conversion um, under 277.70c. This is commonly used uh, for minor offenses where a fine is uh, appropriate. Uh, any, any misdemeanor, any crime can be converted to a civil charge. And then there usually would be payment of some sort of fine. Or, um, or could be fee. A common disposition is payment of court costs, dismissal upon payment of court costs. So OAS, um, sorry, that's operating after suspended license or often driving, other types of minor driving charges will dismiss this upon payment of, you know, $50, $100, $200, whatever. Um, that's, that's also quite common. It is as, Carla mentioned, very unusual to actually plead guilty at arraignment. Um, it, it, I've, I mean, I've seen it happen occasionally for like a quaff or something minor. Um, there's also, by the way, pretrial probation, which is, which is similar to a general continuance, but it's supervised. Um, but again, that is not common for uh, the first session or arraignments. Not seeing any questions, we'll move on. So I mentioned the diversions. There are three types of statutory diversion. The first one is your first offense, uh, drug charge. The second is um, basically a first time offender for, uh, for misdemeanor type of charges. Generally, there are some exceptions uh, to that. 
and then the Valor Act, which is individuals who have served um, and are currently veterans or are on active duty. So um, these are all are available. Um, they are post-arraignment diversions, uh, but they are diversions usually uh, based on some sort of programming. Some other things that can happen, they're not, and I say they're not alternatives. So these things can happen and the issue of bail and pretrial conditions of release can be addressed, right? So the, a mental health commit isn't um, necessarily an alternative. Now you may make the decision as a prosecutor to say, well, because there's someone's being committed um, for mental health assessment, I'm not going to ask for cash bail or conditions of release. But, um, but if you think cash bail or conditions of release are appropriate, then you should ask for them at that arraignment date because here's what happens. The mental health commit happens and three weeks later, the, the facility decides to release that individual. They're, they're, they're not going to bring them back to court. So, um, and there are some surprised people <laughs> who have seen that happen. Um, I'm not going to go into great detail about this. Um, the, there are, 15A is usually around uh, competency. Anybody can raise the issue of competency. Anyone. Prosecutor, defense, judge. I've heard prosecutors say, oh no, that's not my job. It's absolutely your job. Um, if you think somebody is not competent in that moment, then you can ask for an evaluation. Every court has access to a um, clinician who can evaluate the person preliminarily and make a preliminary recommendation about whether someone should be uh, evaluated for competency or not. The other recommendation is whether it should be, this person should be held in a locked facility, and if not, um, if competency is still an issue, but they're not, they pose no danger, then an outpatient evaluation can happen. And if you have a mental health court, um, that could also happen through the mental health court. The defendant is to be arraigned. Um, and again, the prosecutor can request bail and condition of release. Um, there's also a section 35, um, it, which is for detox. Even though the statute says to be held, I think it's up to 60, the average is seven days. So just know you're, you're, if someone's going in in section 35, they're going to be out probably within seven to 10 days um, having detoxed. Um, and then probation can also, of course, ask for detention, meaning somebody is currently on probation as part of their sentence and um, they've committed a new crime, probation, and it's probation's decision whether they want to ask for detention pending the violation of probation hearing or not. Um, so that's something else that happened. I want you to notice throughout all these slides, whether it's revocation, dangerousness, mental health, whatever it is, you cannot hold someone against their will pretrial without some showing of dangerousness. This is another one of my soapbox issues because I've seen people move for revocation and they say, well, they got the warnings and they've, um, they've committed a new crime and therefore they should be revoked, right? Um, you have to show that there's some sort of danger um, and that the, the, 
showing is different for different statutes, but you have to show some sort of danger. Um, so I just want to talk about some of the goals. I mean, obviously, both Carl and I could talk much longer about this, but um, some of the prosecutor's goals, I mean, again, is, is really screening, right? You have to assess what is going on here because there's so many different options and um, pathways you can take at arraignment. Um, and, and even whether to arraign is a decision, right? Or is this somebody who's appropriate for diversion or not, right? And usually all you have are those three documents. Um, Remember the police report, the complaint, and the board of probation record, right? It may be a triple I. Yeah. Three documents, okay? Do not move, do not go forward with arraignment without the three documents. If you remember nothing else, just remember that. Um, so then you're looking at, do I arraign this or do I not, right? Um, it could be that, you know, there are other priorities, and this case just isn't, um, something that is a big deal and this person has no record and we're just we're not going to arraign it. Um, we're going to either null process, before, although I don't know how you can null process something before arraignment, but um, still some judges want that piece of paper to show that the prosecution is not moving forward. Um, and then assess whether this person is a danger or not. Um, and if so, how can you address the danger? Is it are there conditions of release that can be implemented that would reduce the danger? Um, and, and I would consider that whether it be a revocation, a dangerousness hearing, whatever, whatever it is, however you're gonna hold the person uh, or request that the person be held. And so again, what do you have? You have a limited amount of information. You're gonna look for violence on the board of probation record. And of course, in the current case, you're gonna look at substance abuse and whether that's tied to violence. Um, harming themselves, harming others. Again, you don't have a crystal ball and that can be very difficult, um, but you have to try to, to see um, where this is going. I also, um, of course, you're gonna talk to the defense attorney, right? And you're gonna learn uh, a lot from the defense attorney as well. So, um, you know, you have to assess, gather information, and then have a conversation. And then assess, is this person likely to appear in the fu future? Um, financial resources, you know, do you, are, is there a realistic potential um, penalty? So potential penalty, some people will argue, you know, oh, this is an assault battery with a dangerous weapon. Um, the potential penalty is 15 years. But if this person has no record, and it's an ABDW because they kicked the person and the other person has no injuries, this person realistically is not looking at 15 years, right? They're probably at most looking at probation. So even though the sheet says to look at the potential penalty, I encourage you to look at the realistic potential penalty. Um, also, of course, the defendant's life in the community, um, if you're asking for you know, cash bail, that might hold someone, uh, what is the life that you're taking them from? Uh, and how is that going to interrupt their um, contributions to the community? Uh, and then I've listed some things to particularly look for in the Board of Probation record. 
and note on domestic violence cases, there are specific statutory waiting times um, when the uh, arraignment hearing, right, the actual hearing where the prosecutor and the defense make their arguments, um, that there are waiting times if someone is held until that can happen. Um, so once you start looking at DB case or handling DB cases, make sure you look up what those waiting times are. Now, of course, the prosecutor can say, I'm going to waive that. I'm not going to, I am going to go forward with the hearing. I'm not going to abide by the waiting times. That's perfectly fine as well. Um, but there are those statutory waiting times. Carla. And so some of the defense attorney's goals at that first appearance, um, notify the client of what the charges are. Um, really, that's, so, okay, so let me kind of, rather than just going straight through this, let me, let me just um, say that your goals as a defense attorney, you get all this information from the prosecutor and do the assessment. Um, as I kind of talked about earlier, and you know, the same way in which Christina says the prosecutor is doing. Um, when you get that information, you the next thing to do is to talk to your client. So that initial interview with your client um, is going to be your opportunity to establish that relationship, right? This is a, a, a very hard thing for a defense attorney, um, especially you know, sometimes you're meeting somebody who's not in custody, but Personally, you're meeting people who are in custody. And so you have to say, hi, uh, my name is Carla Barrett. You've never met me before. You don't know me from a hole in the wall, but I need you to trust me with your liberty right now. I'm going to ask you some very personal questions and I need you to be honest. P.S. My relationship with you is a confidential one. So anything you tell me, I'm not allowed to tell anybody else. But right now you're sitting in a cell with half a dozen other people. So it's not actually a confidential conversation. So this is kind of how your, your first introduction to your client goes. And you say, look, I've been given this paperwork, so I know what you're accused of. Um, you know, because this, yes, we might have a confidential relationship, but this isn't a confidential setting. Um, you know, we might keep our conversation about what the allegations are to a minimum. Um, but you do really want to try to take that opportunity to gather as much information as you can about you know, everything that's going to come up in that bail hearing. Ask them about their ties to the community, their family history, their history with substance use disorder, um, their employment history, etc. Um, also, you know, as it says on the slide, assess um, abilities of your client. So, you know, even though anybody can raise um, competence, frequently, since the defense attorney is the one having the most actual contact with the defendant, um, you might be in the best position to say, like, hey, wait a second, I think that there's an issue here with this person's understanding of what's going on, and we might need to do that mental health assessment. Um, it says initial interview about offense with an asterisk. Again, that's because, you know, you're really not in a confidential setting. Um, you don't want to go too far into it. You don't necessarily want to put your client in a position of saying something that somehow is going to come back, um, come back at them. Um, if your client is held because of some kind of revocation for one of the many reasons we've already talked about before, because um, they had another case that was open, um, or if a cash bail is set in an amount that they cannot post, then the next day you're going to come back to court has to be within 30 days because people who are in custody, there, there's a, a, you know, a need to really try to move that along. 
Um, and because of the backlog of cases, if the person's not in custody, then it's just going to take longer for their case to drag out. And so, you know, that's why those cases aren't necessarily given the same priority of coming back in 30 days. There's nothing saying you can't. Um, if your client is not held in custody after arraignment, um, you can come back as soon as the court and the prosecutor say they'll be ready for your pretrial hearing or whatever the next court date is going to be. Um, but if they're in custody, you want to make sure to make that as expeditious as possible. Um, and also your job as their lawyer is to make sure that they understand the process and what's coming at them and what their options are going to be in the future and what the next steps are. I know that we're getting very close to the end of our time here. So um, I'm going to kind of leave it at that in terms of what the defense attorney's goals are at that first appearance. Um, no, I'm sorry. It, it, this always flies. So we, we included two more. Um, I knew we wouldn't get to these slides, but there's two more slides about sentencing and possible um, dispositions. Uh, I want to thank Carla. I want to thank Jenna from the BBA for helping us make this happen. If you have follow-up questions, feel free to email us. Um, our emails are here. Again, the PowerPoint and um, a, a checklist uh, is going to be sent to you. It's basically a first appearance checklist. Um, I encourage you to alter that checklist in a way that's helpful to you, um, but I find checklists very helpful, uh, particularly when you're learning about all the different factors and things to consider when you are approaching um, handling an arraignment. Um, so again, thank you. Thank you for attending. And um, we look forward to seeing you in court as well as seeing you at the BBA in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for um, sure. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Everyone. All right. Thank well, you. Happy Friday. Have a happy good one. Friday. Thanks. Bye. Take care, all.